Good morning, and welcome to episode 588 of Effectively Wild, the daily podcast from Baseball Prospectus, presented by the Play Index at BaseballReference.com. I'm Ben Lindbergh of Grantland, joined by Sam Miller of Baseball Prospectus. Hello. Hello. How are you? Fine, thank you. Good. Mm-hmm. Going to do some listener emails today. Long, okay. Long-delayed listener email show. Looking forward to it. Me too. Anything to say before we begin? Yeah, I just want to uh, bring up something that is related to our ongoing non-revelatory rumors series. Uh-huh. Uh, did you read uh, Grant Frisbee's piece on the winter meetings? Uh-huh. Uh, it was good, wasn't it? Yeah, sure. It was like one of the best things written by anyone in the last month and one of the six or seven best things that Grant has written in the last week. <laughs> right. He went out there looking for a scoop. That was the 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 frame of his trip down there is this guy who doesn't get scoops was going to go find a scoop, which is a good topic to write about. Um, And uh, he's got this interesting section, which I'm going to read to you, where he found out that scoops are not what you think they are. And so I'm going to just read. You want to know the truth? I got tons of scoops. Within an hour of getting to the bar on Sunday, I met someone reputable telling me of an offer the National supposedly made involving two excellent players, four major leaguers total, that was rejected by the other team. Would have been a hell of a rumor. Would have made, been something I could have written 2,000 words on with a big old smile on my face. It could have been a tweet that would have made ripples for five, maybe six minutes. Can you imagine? Except it was off the record. Everything is off the record. <laughs> I heard about players who were probably traded because their teams didn't want to deal with a 50-game suspension in the middle of next season. I heard about players who really, really like to smoke weed from one of their agents. And I heard Lester to the Cubs about 600 times before it happened. And this is an an important thing to note with regards to seemingly non-revelatory rumors. I think we have to assume that the rumors often have about 8,000 pounds of credible reporting or at least credible gossip behind them and that because of these kind of fuzzy lines between what's off the record, what's background, what's not for attribution – Uh, And the distinction between those categories, the writers are really trying to sort of get the what they know out there, but they can't say anything. And so they do it with as little actual information as possible. Mm -hmm. And so when you see something that says uh, Diamondbacks may consider signing, um, you know, Brian Bannister, I don't know why I said Brian Bannister, (laughs) you it's probably not always. That's what makes this impossible. That's what makes rumors difficult to value it probably often has um a lot more to it than that the writer knows the writer might know that they've had that they've declared internally that he is their guy and that they are going to go as far as it takes to get him but he can't say that Mm -hmm. and a lot of non-revelatoriness is in the writer's mind not an accident and not a shortcoming so much as the maximum he can get away with. It is designed. It is a carefully crafted non-revelatory rumor that nonetheless reveals to those of us who want to read a lot into these things quite a bit. And so uh, that is just a quick note in defense of the non-revelatory rumor monger. Uh-huh. Okay. Worth pointing out. And we've kind of kind of moved away from this segment in recent shows, but I also wanted to bring something up that is related to it distantly related to it. We don't talk about politics much on this show, but there was a political tweet that some people (laughs) mentioned to me, sent to me today, or mentioned in the Facebook group as a possible non-revelatory rumor. This was a Jeb Bush tweet, former governor of Florida, current member of the Bush family, who said, I am excited to announce I will actively explore the possibility of running for president of the United States. Does this reveal anything to you? I'm not sure specifically what Jeb Bush has done, but I do know that presidents, the first stage to declaring is it's actually a a procedural thing. You have to yes, you have to create a, a committee. Exactly, a uh, exploratory committee, mm-hmm. and the exploratory committee is a non-revelatory sounding word for an actually revelatory procedural event. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if that's what Jeb Bush is doing, but it's possible it is. It could be, yes. He he didn't 
he didn't say that. His tweet linked to a Facebook post that also doesn't say anything about forming a committee. Just says actively exploring the possibility of running. But maybe maybe that is just code for the same thing. And maybe it just tells us that he's going to do that, even if he hasn't done that. So maybe it reveals something. But the language is similar to baseball rumors that we have made fun of on this show. Mm -hmm. Okay, let's do some emails. This one comes from Clark, who addresses it to Ben and Sam, but mostly Sam. Should Brett Gardner be considered in the best player never to play in an all-star game or receive an MVP vote discussion? He's only two wins above replacement behind Nick Markakis, 25.2 to 23.2 at baseball reference in six years of service time compared to Markakis' nine. Since 2010, Markakis has accumulated just 8.3 war. Gardner put up four war seasons in both 2013 and 2014. They are the same age. Markakis' neck problems may allow Gardner to pass him in career war this year. Maybe you've discussed Gardner and I just forgot. Um, yeah, the, I, I, I think as I answered the, the listener, I think that probably what happened is when I was doing this search, I was probably looking at a career war leaderboard. And my guess is that when you're looking for players who've never received an MVP vote or an all-star game nod, uh, there's probably not a lot of guys at say 25 career war and like infinite guys at 18 war. And so you quickly go from going, uh, oh, this guy is interesting to, oh, look, all of these people fit. And it's a fairly small margin between those two groups. So I would say, I think that probably Marcakis had cleared the mass and therefore stood relatively alone, and Gardner was in the mass. At the time, it was like a 23 to 19 uh, edge. That edge has, has narrowed. And, uh, and yeah, I think that it was a, a flaw in the way I was, I was looking for this because I think that, yeah, certainly, Brett Gardner has a very good case for that, D- don't you? Yeah, absolutely. I've They're now, yeah, now like only Brett Gardner for a while now, and and he is, yeah. yeah, he's turned into an excellent player. I would guess that you think Brett Gardner is a better player than Mark Higgins? right now. Uh, no, in his career. Uh, yeah. Well, it's I don't know on a per per plate appearance or per game basis. Certainly, he is. He hasn't played as long, so in total value, I guess they are pretty equivalent as Clark pointed out, but Gardner has made the most of that time. And I would guess that if you polled the average baseball fan who watches Sunday Night Baseball, it would be something like 9 to 1 voting for Marquez. Yeah, I would think so. Although, I don't know. I mean, aren't aren't Yankees supposed to be overrated if anything? Yankees are supposed to be, but Gardner I don't think, does I don't think seem like a an underrated Yankee, which is maybe not a oxymoron. Yeah. Okay, this Good question. question. No, Mar- I mean, yeah. Uh, yeah, Gardner. The funny thing, though, is that I'm I would actually root for Gardner to get a vote. I think because <laughs> <laughs> he is underrated, and because part of uh, maybe part of what makes Marcakis interesting is that we are talking about what is essentially a contest for the most underrated player, and yet the leader is a player who I consider overrated. That's what <laughs> has made it delightful that it's Marcakis. Uh-huh. He. he he sort of transcends the genre. He has flipped it around. Time is a flat circle. It just doesn't make any sense that Marcakis is the guy. That's right. Hmm. Okay. Well, in that sense, I'm still rooting for Marcakis, though. He's a better, he's a more fitting leader for this category. Agreed. Okay. This question comes from Luis, who says, Hi, guys. With so many surprising moves this offseason, I've noticed a spike in, quote-unquote, what X team is doing articles and comments. What the A's are doing, trading Donaldson. What the Red Sox are doing, filling their rotation with ground ball pitchers. What the White Sox are doing, or the Cubs, or the Dodgers. What do you think of the concept? Off the top of my head, I think doing something involves major payroll change, major personnel change, and apparent changes in a team's philosophy. But I'm sure you can come up with more components. So what does it take for a team to be doing something in the eyes of the baseball community? Do you want to answer first, or should I? Well, I think, I mean, he hit on a few of the the major components of this. I think a big part of it is just a team playing against type somehow. The Marlins awarding the biggest contract in in North American professional sports is a good example of what is what is team X doing, because this is 
the Marlins seemingly operating in a way that we have not seen them operate before, and yet, is it truly different or is it not? That's worth lots of articles and tea leaf reading. There's, I think, the the kind that he sort of alluded to with the Red Sox ground ball pitchers thing, where if a team starts targeting a player of a certain type all of a sudden, that's always very interesting. If you can find some commonality to all the players that a team has acquired lately, then you can kind of come to the conclusion that maybe they think that sort of player is undervalued, and then you can look into whether whether that's true, whether there's any evidence that that's true, how much they're undervalued. So that's what we're always doing with, with the A's, with the fly ball hitters and everything. There's always some some new... I mean, that's your typical what's the what's the new or what's the next inefficiency in baseball. That's always a popular topic. So if a team seems to have found it or be acting in a way that's consistent with their having found it, then that's worth talking about. And... And just, I mean, a lot of turnover, I guess, is always interesting. Uh, if a team just loses a lot of free agents or is incredibly active, like the Dodgers making five moves in one day or whatever it was, that's worth talking about. And obviously they just completely changed their front office, so that is worth talking about too. Is there anything else that stands out to you? Yeah, like you alluded to, it's much more interesting to review a trend in baseball than it is to review one player who you're probably familiar with. And so for a writer, there's going to be a strong incentive for you to stretch beyond the player himself into uh, a strategy into, and turning it into a baseball strategy. I also think that um, you don't like what they say during political seasons when they talk about how the gaffes, the gaffes that tend to uh, have legs, the gaffes that tend to Hurt candidates the most are, and I'm going to quote here the Washington Post, uh, the worst ones are the ones that confirm people's pre-existing suspicions or fit into an easy narrative. Uh And I think that's true for positive or negative. It amplifies the significance of a deal when you can fit it into a narrative that you already believe about a team. It just raises your, um, you know, your ability to to talk about that trade uh, like eightfold. Mm-hmm. Exact, exactly eightfold. <laughs> that's, that's the specific calculation of how many folds of extra discussion you can have. And so when you can fit it into that narrative, it's it's much, much easier to write about it uh, and have it be kind of more lasting. I mean, basically, these players, there's 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 800 players that are existing constantly. And if we were to just assess what the player is at all times or where he fits on a depth chart, uh, that's useful. We do that. That's interesting. It's certainly valuable to baseball writing, I think. Um, but it's not the special occasion. And when you can write a piece about um, a trend, that's the special occasion. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's like the Mariners signing Nelson Cruz or something. As you, as you did, you wrote about not just Cruz, but about the Mariners and their long pursuit of Cruz and their pursuit of Cruz-type hitters and power hitters and how they seem to have been fixated on that particular quality for a while now. So that just that just adds a lot of flavor to the transaction analysis when it's not just how much is Nelson Cruz making and how much is Nelson Cruz worth. It's why does this team like Nelson Cruz and players like Nelson Cruz so much? Uh, okay, let's do an Eric Hartman question who's says there has been a large increase in major league player for player or major league player for major league player trades notably starting with Lester and Cespedes in July it's easy enough to analyze all player for prospect trades on a macro level of one team is going for it next year the other is not are the player for player trades naturally more interesting and pleasing because they require some thought of how they impact two ostensibly contending teams they're more interesting and pleasing. They're easier to analyze, I would say. Uh, well, they're 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 not. They're, I guess they're easier in the sense that they're not so obvious. The motives aren't so obvious. With with a prospect for a major leaguer, the motives of each team are obvious, and there's really nothing you can say about them. I mean. You can say, well, geez, it feels like they should have got a better prospect yeah. or something like that. But, you you know, you don't really know and you have to assume that 
if there was a better prospect out there, they would have taken him, and maybe they have a different view of that prospect. You certainly don't have the best view of that prospect. You're not the prospect expert. So I find those moves to be very difficult to say. You could say pretty much all you can say about those moves is good timing, right? Mm-hmm. This team, the team that got better, good timing. The team that <laughs> sold, also good timing. They picked good timing to do moves uh, that um, were geared at a specific time. But as far as measuring the value of one player to another, I find that very challenging. I always have a hard time with that, um, trying to figure out how to balance the need to win now versus some potential uh, marginal runs that you'll pick up three and a half years from now. Is It's a very tricky calculus, and so I find it a bit challenging. With the player for player, it's easy to say which player is better, right? Mm-hmm. And... Um, so, although we've seen a mix in these trades where it's been player for player and also prospects, like in the the Donaldson deal, where you have yeah. to figure out how much worse is Brett Laurie than Josh Donaldson, and then do the prospects make up for that difference or more than make up for it? So you kind of have to do both at the same time, which makes it more difficult. But I don't know. Is more difficult is also probably more interesting. So it's both, right? More, I, don't, I don't know if it's more pleasing, but it's more, it's easier, it's easier to write about, or, or at least it's easier to write something interesting when it's not just your standard seller and buyer trade. Yeah, I think it's more, I think it's probably more, int- I don't know, I don't, I don't know that I view these through the lens of interesting. They're all to me roughly equally interesting (laughs) some of them are some of them are harder to create a theme for an analysis of it and so maybe that's the same as interesting um but i guess the the macro trend itself is somewhat interesting to me yeah uh i thought it was very for instance at the trade deadline i thought it was extremely interesting that Mm -hmm. players that teams that were getting better at the deadline had to do so by getting worse somewhere else in their their lineup i mean as we talked about with the Tigers in price, uh, by some reasonable ways of looking at it, it made the Tigers a worse team. And you would never have seen a team at the trade deadline who was going for a pennant run giving up a good starter and their starting center fielder to do it. It would have been all prospects and or financial considerations. And so just the fact that teams are having to do that that this has become the uh, that your your veterans themselves are the pieces you sell off when you are adding veterans is interesting to me. Mm-hmm. Um, but I guess it depends on the players. Lester Cespedes was interesting. Yeah, that was interesting, but not well. That was interesting because it involved one team that was really going for it and another that had been expected to contend but was punting for the short term but but not for a very but but for the very very short term and intending to contend the next year so there was there was a lot of interesting stuff going on with that trade but it, it was partially the players involved and partially where the teams were but that's kind of the the interesting thing about all these deals it's that no one is really out of it it's all you're analyzing short term impact for both sides really even if one is shorter than the other it's not like well this this will help this team be better in five years or something which is kind of interesting if maybe that team is stockpiling tons of prospects but not that interesting otherwise now it's analyzing Oakland in 2014 and also analyzing both teams in 2015 so I think I prefer it as a writer I don't know whether I would care otherwise did you find though that Porcello, Cespedes was fun. Because to me, that felt like t- considering the quality of players, like if Cespedes had been traded to Arizona for prospects and Porcello had been traded to Cincinnati for prospects, those would have been two fun right- moves to write up. Mm-hmm. And instead, Porcello for Cespedes was no fun at all. <laughs> Not, like, to- like we didn't talk about it. Nobody talked about it. It was... Uh, almost entirely interesting for its effect on your keeper league and nothing else that's true so that was right i mean that was two contenders two two current contenders filling 
just filling a weakness on each other's roster with a strength from the other's roster, which is, yeah, there wasn't much to say about it that you wouldn't say about the usual buyer-seller thing. I don't know. It's kind of it's interesting in that it's players we know, at least, whereas if you and I write about prospects, it's always like, you know, we're going on secondhand information or we're we're asking a prospect person to send us something about that guy and just looking at his numbers and reading scouting reports, but he's not real to us in the same way, whereas these guys both kind of were. So, I don't know, mildly interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Anyway, this is a question from Grammar. Really, it's a response, follow-up to something we talked about Monday. He says, on the last episode, Sam mentioned that teams with more than one first-round draft pick were more likely to sign free agents with a draft pick penalty. And he concluded that this was because they undervalued the draft pick. I have an alternative take. Could it not be because they have, by virtue of being awarded a compensatory draft pick, lost a good free agent of their own and therefore have a hole on their roster? As a Giants fan, I'm thinking of them here. Because they lost Pablo Sandoval, they may think they have to go out and sign a star, Scherzer or Shields, to appease the fans. Okay, it's a pitcher replacing a third baseman, but it shows the team's intent Anyway, just a thought. Um, yeah, I think that's plausible. And it's also, I, I think it's also the case that you're more likely, just even without that uh, reaction motive element to it, I think you're more likely to, teams that are likely to sign a big free agent are also more likely to have that big free agent who leaves because mm-hmm. They could afford to have signed him earlier, to have traded for him when he was getting expensive in arbitration. Uh, so uh, it would be worth looking at case by case basis to see whether that's happening. Um, I don't know that. I don't think I. Anytime I see appease the fans, I think eh, probably not appease the fans. I don't think appeasing the fans uh, is a very significant motivator in moves like these, uh, in moves at all. Uh, at least anymore um felt like it it does it feels like it kind of was more in a previous era but Mm -hmm. i don't ever really get the appease the fans vibe from any teams maybe teams have just not talked about it as much or maybe maybe we're better at analyzing moves and so we don't just lean on the appease the fans element but i don't think appeasing the fans happens much um but yeah it makes sense that if you lose i mean pablo sandoval was making quite a bit of money and when he leaves, it frees up some money. So just in that sense, there's maybe more of a likelihood that they would be buyers. Um, mm-hmm. I So I wouldn't rule it out, but I wouldn't conclude it's true without looking at it on a case-by-case basis. Mm-hmm. Graham, by the way, closes his email by pointing out that if either of us ever <laughs> thought of giving up the podcast, which he says, please no, Grant Brisby would be an excellent replacement. All caps on the excellent. I sense that he is not totally opposed to one of us giving up the podcast if it were if it meant Grant being the yeah. replacement. I think Grant might be opposed to one of us giving us <laughs> giving up the podcast if it meant Grant would be the replacement. Probably. Yeah. I think I would. I mean, I would fire Ben, and Ben would fire me if Grant were attainable every every day. Grant would be here if he were available every day. Ben, Ben. I'm going to embarrass Ben (laughs) and we'll see if he edits this out. (laughs) But after we did episode 500 with Grant and Jeff, like two seconds later, Ben G chatted me like in seriousness. I wonder if we could get like do that weekly. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, sure. I'm not editing that out just in case they're listening and they're interested. Okay. Uh, Okay. Want to do play index? Yeah, sure. I can't remember if I've ever gone with this. Uh, basic idea before, but I've always been really, really, I think almost one of the first things that I, that appealed to me about play index when I first got it probably five ish years ago, I think maybe six, five, four, four to six years ago, uh, was, (laughs) this is weird, but I love seeing the, uh, bottom of teams, all time save lists, saves lists. (laughs) Like I love looking at, at who a team's 14th most saves is because it like your closer is i mean closer is a it's a big deal there's only 30 closers 
and who your closer is defines your team while he is your closer. It's a huge part. He is he is on the banner outside your stadium. That is one of your stars. And yet, uh, closers are often going in and out of jobs. Some of them close close like not just get saves, but some of them close for like four months of their life and never before and never again. And then some of them are on a different team every year. And so you see the most random names um, on teams, you know, leaderboards for saves and you forget that these guys ever played for that team. Mm-hmm. And so what I've done, Ben, is I've designed a quiz to embarrass you. Oh, no. So I've got, I went through play index and I looked at each team's saves total, uh, saves leaderboard, career saves leaderboard. And I have found, I've gotten a guy who is 20th on his team, 19th on his team, different guy, 19th, different guy, 18th, different guy, 17th. And I found one for each, uh, each position from 20th to 10th. And I'm going to name the player and you're going to name the team. <laughs> okay. I don't know uh, whether this is to make me feel better or to make Ryan Webb and Matt Albers feel bad. No. <laughs> Ryan Webb is actually, Ryan Webb with no saves is actually like ninth on the Rays all time list <laughs> uh-huh. in, a, in a tie. Okay. Uh, all right. So 20th place in, uh, in, in franchise history is Octavio Dotel. Name the team. <laughs> Tigers? It is not. He is. Uh, he. I think he might have been like uh, like thirteenth or something on the Tigers. No. Good guess. Good guess. The Oakland A's. Octavio Patel is the twentieth best closer in Oakland A's history. Wow. <laughs> when did uh, so that was? Let's say two thousand four. Dude, two, that 2005. was a- that was a big move when it happened. Like that was that was peak Billy Bean. Like mm. I couldn't I couldn't fawn over that move enough. Because you know, he had been getting closers for cheap and they'd been turning out good. Oh. And that was right when you know, it seems like that was right when all the moneyball stuff was exploding and it just seemed like he could print closers out of nothing. And Dotel was a little different than the other guys because not only was he um not being paid much, although they did have to give up something to get him. Uh, but not only was he not being paid much, but he was an elite reliever, just not getting saves. Unlike like Billy Koch didn't seem like an elite reliever until he got the saves. Mm-hmm. Totel seemed like an elite reliever even before, and then he wasn't that good. Totel got one save for Detroit. <laughs> oh, yeah, okay. So uh, he wasn't. You, you, you pick the guy who pitched for 13 teams. <laughs> That's not a, fair way. <laughs> not a fair way to start. Yeah, but how many of those teams is he 20th on the all-time saves list? Uh, I don't know, but he Probably has he has saves for uh, all but four of those teams. Mm. I like Octavio Dotel. Pick the teams that Dotel does not have a save for. That's a good trivia question. Pick, uh, four teams. Pick four teams that Octavio Dotel pitched <laughs> for and does not have a save for. Yeah. <laughs> all right. I'm uh, I'm going to think about this. Okay, so he pitched for thirteen teams. Uh huh. <laughs> All right, so not the Angels, not the A's, mm-hmm. n- not uh, not the Astros. Uh, I will say the Blue Jays, not the Braves. Uh, I don't you're, know about the. You're guessing Blue Jays? Yeah. Uh, he had one save for the Blue Jays. Oh, <laughs> <It's> difficult. <laughs> yes, it is. Um, I'll say Phillies. Phillies. Octavio Dotel. Did not pitch for the Phillies. <laughs> so you managed to find the team that Dotel did not pitch for. All right. <laughs> All right. I will say, okay, Yankees. Yes, Yankees is one. I will not say that. I will, uh, Royals. Royals. Uh, Royals, he had. <clears throat> oh, wait. I scrolled down. Uh, Royals. Royals, he had 11 saves for. Really? Did I did I guess Phillies? <laughs> you did. <laughs> uh, I, will, I will say Dodgers. Mm, nope. One save for the Dodgers. <laughs> this is probably the least entertaining game to listen to that we've ever played. <laughs> Unbelievable. This is impossible. Cardinals. Cardinals. Two saves. Unbelievable. <laughs> 
You're kidding me. <laughs> I, I, I can't, I can't go on. I can't go on. I, I have to quit. <laughs> You've already named one team that he didn't play for. So, so yeah. Um, well, one team that you ruled out very quickly is a correct answer. The Braves. I didn't know he paid. He played. For <laughs> he pitched seven and two thirds innings for the Braves. Zero saves. The other two teams are the Mets. Somewhat surprising. He he pitched a whole whole eighty five and a third innings for them. Actually, he was a starter for most of that time. So no saves for the Mets and no saves for the Rockies. Octavio Octavio Dotel pitched for the Rockies for eight games. Yeah, the Rockies was going to be my next guess. I didn't know he pitched for the Mets. I wouldn't have guessed that he pitched for the Mets in 20 guesses. He only has 109 career saves, actually. Yeah, he you know, he said, I don't know if he's going to, but he um he missed last year with some he missed last year, right? Didn't he yeah. didn't he have TJ last year? Uh, what am I or was it the year before? I thought that he missed all of 2014 and wanted to come back. I mean, he was saying he wanted to come back after missing a year. So I don't know if he's still planning to, or uh, if that if that was old. Yeah, I don't know. His BP player card says that he was on the 60-day DL for most of 2013 with right elbow inflammation. So he he did retire on on October 3rd, just a few weeks ago. I didn't do the BP way back of his comments. Uh-huh. He announced his retirement on October 3rd. Uh-huh. His career strikeout rate is the best in history for a right-handed pitcher. Wow. The best in history for a right-handed pitcher with at least 900 innings, which rules mm-hmm. out almost all relievers. <laughs> right. Okay. All right. Uh, so number uh, Mike Stanton is 19th in career saves for a team. Which team? Huh. Mike Stanton. I mean, I don't remember Stanton getting saves for the Yankees, so maybe he picked one up now and then, and it seems like it would be be too obvious, though, because that's the team that he's probably most associated with. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I guess I'll go with that. Uh, it's the Mariners. Mm. My okay. favorite thing about my favorite thing about Mike Stanton is that he was I mean, he's a loogie. He's just he's nothing. He's a soft tossing loogie who was drafted in the 13th round. Doesn't seem like anything. And we don't think about this. But before he came up, he was an elite prospect. And in fact, if the Marlins had just called John Carlos Stanton up a few weeks earlier, then Mike Stanton would have ended up with a higher Baseball America prospect ranking than John Carlos Stanton ever achieved. But it didn't happen. Stanton got one more year and ended up being like fifth in baseball or something like that. Wait, when did Stanton pitch for the Mariners? Are you sure he pitched for the Mariners? <laughs> I don't think he uh, pitched for the Mariners. Somebody named Mike Stanton did. Oh, yeah. <laughs> a, different, right. a different Mike Stanton? Must be. Oh, oh, okay. It was the, the Stanton from the, the 70s and 80s then. Oh, well, that wow. I, well, I wouldn't, wouldn't have used that one. Sorry. Rough. 23 saves for the Mariners, that Stanton. Wouldn't have used it if I'd known. My apologies. That's okay. All right. Randy Choate, 18th in saves for what franchise? <laughs> oh, Randy Choate. <laughs> All right. Uh, so let's say Choate has pitched for the Cardinals and the Diamondbacks and the Yankees. He came up with the Yankees. Um, I don't know else. Uh, and I'm probably missing some teams. Uh did he pitch? He pitched for the. Uh, he pitched for the Rays. Did he pitch for the Rays? He did. I'll go with the Rays. You got it. Ooh, all right. He's got one. One <laughs> okay. for two in the fair fight category. <laughs> all right. Let's see how many career saves does Randy Choate have? He had five for the Rays, by the way. Uh huh. And he has six lifetime. <laughs> all right. Uh, Danny Spaez, seventeenth for what team? Oh man. I don't really remember Baez beyond the Rays. Um, but you probably wouldn't double up on the Rays, would you? And Baez was like the primary closer for the Rays, as I recall, briefly at least. Um, did, did Baez pitch for the... Oh, man. Oh, he Didn't he pitch for the the Orioles one year? Is it the Orioles? It's not the Orioles. Oh, it's okay. the Indians. Oh, huh. 
Okay. All right. Frank Francisco. <laughs> Frank Francisco, 16th for what team? Rangers? Blue Jays. Mm. Jonathan Broxton, 15th for which team? Reds? Royals. Ugh. Jose Mesa, 14th for which oh, team? Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's... Uh, another guy who was on every team. Uh, Jose Mesa. All right. Well, I remember him primarily as a Phillies closer, so I feel like he probably got too many saves for the Phillies. And he must have had too many saves for the Indians because he was with them for a while. Pirates? Uh, Mariners. Ugh. <laughs> this, is, this is the hardest game we've ever played. <laughs> it is the hardest game. And yet you got one. Yeah. Although Randy, Randy, RJ's uh, uh, random number generating free agent rumor <laughs> tracker also gets some right. Uh, Jorge Julio, 13th. Ugh. Mets? Did he pitch for the Mets? Probably. Yeah. Diamondbacks. Ugh. All right. Lee Smith, 12th. Oh, come on. <laughs> Uh, Lee Smith. So it's like the guy with the second most <laughs> saves ever. Supposed to guess. Um, Red Sox. Angels. Ugh. Who gets their Bina? Eleventh. Tigers. Seventeenth <laughs> for Tigers. Oh, nice. Yeah. Oh wait, but we're not doing seventeenth. No. Oh, okay. <laughs> Red Sox. And then last one, Francisco Cordero, tenth. <sighs> Ah, uh, man. Where did Francisco Cordero go <laughs> besides the Reds? Uh, oh, well, he came up with Texas. Uh, he probably got too many saves for Texas, but whatever. Texas. Milwaukee. <laughs> Every single one of these guys cost you your waiver position in a fantasy league. Ugh. <laughs> uh, that was painful for everyone. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So if you want to torture your friends with with impossible play index quizzes you can subscribe to the play index at baseballreference.com using the coupon code bp to get the discounted price of 30 dollars on a one-year subscription uh okay this is one that you said you wanted me to ask although you didn't have an answer at the time and i still don't think i have an answer and hopefully you have one by now Nope. This is okay. This is from John, who says, "Are there any baseball myths that you still hang on to, despite evidence to the contrary? For example, and perhaps I'm answering my own question, but there are plenty of others. The myth of lineup protection, which I no longer believe in because the evidence has convinced me. But maybe one of you wants to hang on to the idea that it matters. If you have myths that you still believe in." Would you classify them as I'm not convinced that the evidence proves or disproves that particular point or as despite the overwhelming evidence, I'm going to hold on to my belief until you pry it out of my cold, dead hands, or perhaps you readily accept when empirical evidence comes along to your satisfaction. There was a there was another Ken Arneson essay not long ago where he listed 10 things that he believes about baseball without having any evidence that they're true. And I almost made that a topic. I was going to have us come up with our, our own, but then I thought about it for a little while. I couldn't really come up with many good ones, so I didn't make that a topic. So as for this one, I, don't, I wouldn't classify it as a myth unless it really had been disproved. If I thought there was still a chance that it might be true, I wouldn't count it. And so I, maybe it's a better question to be like, what are, what are things that there is no evidence to suggest or there's more evidence to suggest that it's not true than there is to suggest that it is true, but we still believe it anyway? I don't know. Do you have anything? Uh, I, when I was growing up, my family had total belief in the blowout rule, which is that if you blew out a team mm -hmm. and then played them the next day, you would lose. And so we, the, the definition of a blowout had to be determined. And so I think it was decided that it was, uh, nine to nothing or any 10 run win. So, uh, I guess nine, uh, actually I think it was, yeah, nine, nothing or any 10 run win. So nine, nothing, 10, nothing, 11, one and so on. Mm -hmm. And, uh, we believed it wholeheartedly. And so, uh, this was a way of making games slightly interesting because if, 
the team was winning uh, 14 to five in the ninth inning, you might still be rooting for something. Uh-huh. Um, and uh, besides the fact that this doesn't make any sense, uh, we, uh, I mean, you could make a, you could make some sort of narrative where uh, it might make a little sense, um, perhaps, uh, a little, but I did look at it once when I was writing for the Orange County Register and found nothing. And yet I still have an emotional, mm. an emotional response to a blowout. Uh huh. So I would say that's one that emotionally I hang on to. Okay. I still mention it if the if if an important game happens and it's a blowout, I'll still mention to my dad, "Oh, it's blowout." At least they uh-huh. at least they at least they got him to a blowout. And yet, <laughs> if you had to put money on the outcome of the next game, you would probably not factor it in. If I had to put money on the next game, I probably wouldn't follow baseball anymore. I mean, what kind of weird <laughs> sport would make you put money on it? I mean, yeah. I just I wouldn't do it. I uh-huh. wouldn't do I wouldn't follow that sport. I'd quit. Mm. Okay. Yeah, I don't know. I don't. I don't have anything. I'm very evidence-driven. If the if I feel like the evidence has disproved it, then I don't. I don't believe it anymore. But well, but you know, the evidence is often wrong or inconclusive. I mean, yeah, I believe... but then I, w- I wouldn't consider it disproven. Um, oh yeah. So I don't know. I'm having a hard time coming up with something that I know definitively isn't true, and yet still believe to be true mm-hmm. there are things maybe that i would like to be true that i think aren't true anyway i don't know if anyone has any good ones that, that they believe let us know uh all right one more let's see what we have here um <clears throat> okay how about this one from robert we talk a fair amount about how various tactical decisions impact how we enjoy the game Increased pursuit of strikeouts by pitchers and home runs by hitters, bunting, defensive shifts, bullpen usage, etc. While the efficacy of strategic approaches at the front office level is a favorite topic, baseball writers don't talk so much about the aesthetic effects of these decisions. Do you prefer seasons with a few great teams or a larger number of flawed contenders? Would you rather watch teams with a wider or narrower variance around their expected outcomes in a season? And does your answer change depending on the mean of that distribution? Given the choice between a long run of seasons with likely strong but not elite performance and a big push for contention in one season at the cost of future performance, which would you choose? What's more satisfying, acquiring major league talent over the winter or at the trading deadline? Feel free to generalize. These questions are but a sample from the larger population. Any of those things stand out as more aesthetically pleasing? I A lot of people wrote at the end of this past regular season that it was a bad season, that it was a boring season. Mm -hmm. And I didn't get that impression at all. To me, there might be the rare season that really stands out for some, some reason. Maybe there's a particularly memorable pennant race or, or there's some, some chase for a record that kind of dominates coverage for the summer, that sort of thing. But for the most part, I feel like every season is good. <laughs> they all deliver as much entertainment as we could want. Some are slightly better than others. But 2014 didn't really strike me as a particularly boring one. And it, if it was one, it totally redeemed itself with the playoffs, which were very good. I think probably the playoffs in that they're only a month long, stand out to me as better or worse than average, more so than a regular season does. Regular season is just so long, and there's always the same number of games, and every team plays them. And there's, I mean, this this season wasn't the greatest for pennant races, I guess, but, and offense was down, and maybe some people don't like that. But on the whole, it was just a, another season. They're all good seasons. They all have a lot of things to recommend them. But I don't I don't know. I like the I like the all in, I guess. I like the the Oakland thing that they did. I mean I like I like Oakland going for it and and jeopardizing their future more than I enjoy Oakland selling off short term in order to ensure that they aren't terrible in the future. That's less it's interesting to talk about, but it's not as interesting to watch, probably. There was this um, Wall Street Journal article five years or so ago about how 
you should make your vacations better. And the key thing is that there should be novelty. So if you go to a new location, that's ideal. If you do, you should make sure you do things that you don't do everywhere else. But if, even if you have, say, a cabin, like you have a cabin in the woods and it's your family cabin and you go there all the time, um, you should make sure that uh, you do different things every time because that's the sort of thing that sticks out in your memory. Otherwise, as we know from many happiness studies, we quickly <clears throat> uh, incorporate um, you know, any repeated event uh, as just sort of the new bar for normal and it no longer creates happiness. It just creates that new level of what we need to rise above to get happy, you know? And, um, so for instance, if you have this cabin, you should go to a different restaurant every time and you'll remember it and you should go to a different, you should do a different event every time. And then that way you'll remember that specific trip. You, you won't forget that the trip happened a week after it's gone. And in a sense, if you're, if the point of a vacation is to be relaxed while you're there and to simply experience and enjoy it while you're there and get away from the regular world. Well, you don't have to do that novelty stuff because just getting away from your life and being relaxed and reading and going to the same places you always love and having your comfort restaurants will make you happy. However, if you want that vacation to have a sort of amplitude in your life's experiences and uh, last a bit longer in your memory, um, you should do different things. And so as far as what I enjoy while I'm watching it, I don't think I have an aesthetic preference. However, looking back at what I remember about baseball over the last 30 years, it is certainly the outlier performances. It's the best teams. It's the best performances. It's the uh, wider variance, I would say, between uh, both team quality and results and outcomes and all of those things that create um, something that you haven't seen um, before and that stands out. Um, creates a sort of richer memory of baseball experiences. And so I would guess that um, in that philosophical vein, um, the experience that I'm having in the moment doesn't really matter as much as uh, how much it implants itself into my brain. So I'll go with wider variance, uh, less parity, greater teams, worse teams, and more extreme performances. Okay. And... Before we end, I wanted to ask you about the Brett Anderson signing for just a minute, because okay. we uh, we've talked about this in the past, where <clears throat> we um, at least I was often willing to praise any any signing like this, where it's the standard line about how it's a low risk, high reward move with a, a one year contract for a pitcher who's been injured a lot, or any player, but particularly a pitcher. And I saw the same thing with Anderson. And actually, there were a few deals like that this week. There's Anderson, and then there was Gavin Floyd signing, and uh, Brandon Morrow signing also. A few of these one-year incentive-laden deals for people who haven't been able to stay healthy. And I, I swore off these guys a while ago, whenever it was. It was Sean Markham who was the, the final straw for me after I, I bought into him being a good deal on one of these one-year contracts, and then he got hurt again. And we talked about that a bit. So, Brett Anderson, this is, this is I, I thought, a, a surprising number of dollars that he got. I don't know whether you agreed, but it's uh, it's not really interesting to talk about dollars anymore, especially when you're talking about a one-year deal involving the Dodgers. I mean, every, every one-year deal deal for the Dodgers is low risk. So the question is more whether there is actually any chance of a high reward, whether that is really even a realistic possibility. What did you think of, of this move? Uh, don't get it at all. And I think that the, like you maybe are saying, it's the, the problem is that the problem is that it's only one year. It's like, even if this works out amazingly and he pitches great for you, then he's gone in a year. Like what you really would want to do, I would think for a guy like this, is convince him that he that you're going to make him set for life in a way that he otherwise won't be, and you'll give him twenty million dollars, but you get him for six years, mm -hmm. and so that way at least if it pays off, you get him. As it is now, if it pays off, at most they bank you know an extra win or two at most. 
but they're probably going to get nothing. I mean, the, it seems to me that the far most likely event here is that Brett Anderson throws another 50 innings. It's okay, but not great 50 innings. Mm-hmm. And they get not nearly $10 million worth out of even if they do, though, so then he's gone. I mean, you know, yeah. it's a, to me, it's a very low low upside. That's the problem. Yeah, I don't get it. And when the Padres signed Josh Johnson, they at least put that $4 million option in so that mm-hmm. if he had been any good last year, which he wasn't, but if he had, then they would have had Josh Johnson for $4 million, which would have been pretty cool. That was That was half of his salary, his guaranteed salary for 2014. So... There was some upside there. As it was, they they declined that option. Didn't end up being any upside, but the possibility was there at least. So, I, yeah, the Brett Anderson thing kind of mystifies me other than, I don't know, if, if Brett Anderson were healthy, then they'd have a great rotation after signing McCarthy and bringing back the few guys that they had. But it sort of mystifies me other than just Dodgers having tons of money and who cares. What's uh, How many innings will he pitch? Uh, I don't, I mean, it's hard to say because he's coming off, I mean, what were his injuries this this past year? One of them was yeah. just the, the finger fracture or whatever yeah. it was where it's like, is that, did that happen because he's Brett Anderson or did it just happen because he's he's a pitcher and it happens to anyone? But he also had low a low back injury and back surgery for a bulging disc, which sounds like the sort of thing that can become chronic for for certain people so i i don't know uh maybe i mean he hasn't topped 45 innings since 2011 he hasn't topped 100 innings since 2010 so i i'll say i'll say 50 i was gonna say 43 yeah he had 43 last year so i don't know it's a weird one it is a weird one i'd like to when they write the book about the Dodgers 25 years from now and everybody's super honest, I'd like to read about this one. <laughs> yeah, me too. All right, uh, so that's it for today. We will be back later this week. Please send us some emails for next week at podcast at baseballperspectus.com. Join the Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash effectively wild and rate and review and subscribe to the podcast on iTunes.